0: i'm kyle salmon and i'm corey Astle. welcome to conservative minds a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of american conservatism what does it mean to call yourself a conservative what did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today we explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from past and present each episode We select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 32, we read Rationalism in Politics by Michael Oakeshott, published in 1962.
1: Michael Oakeshott was born December 11th, 1901 at Chelsfield, Kent, England. He attended St. George's School from 1912 to 1920. And was a scholar of Gonville and Caius College, Cambridge, from 1920 to 1923. He held a graduate studentship from 1923 to 26. When he became a fellow of Gonville and Caius College, and began a period of study at Tubingen and Marburg from 1929 to 1951. He was an official fellow and lecturer in history at Gonville and Caius College, and from 1933 to 1950, university lecturer in history. He served in the British Army in England, France, and Germany from 1942 to 1945 during World War II. And when, once he returned to Cambridge, he founded the Cambridge Journal. He became a fellow of Nuffield College, Oxford, in 1950-51, and professor of political science at the London School of Economics and Political Science. That's a post he held until his official t- retirement in 1967. He became a fellow of the British Academy in 1966. He died in 1990 in his home in Acton, Dorset, and was buried in the parish churchyard, in neighboring Langston-Metravers. So one interesting point here is he actually served as a college professor in history, not actually philosophy or, or political science. So that's a little bit different than some of our other, uh, other authors. But hmm, I've read elsewhere that he actually, although he had his basically his PhD and he was, had a post in
0: history. He was actually a lot more interested in the ideas. (laughs) So, well, that comes through in this book. I mean, this is a, it's a very philosophical work, although it's certainly grounded in history. You can see us fitting more in, in, into the discipline of philosophy than, than to history.
1: Mm -hmm. So he, he propounds this uh, conservatism that you and I wouldn't necessarily Recognize in America, and uh, and so I guess from that standpoint, it's it's a really interesting read to kind of get a sense for how others, you know, our cousins in England, how they would view conservatism. So we read uh, this book, Rationalism in Politics. That's actually a collection of essays. We focused on two particular essays. One is called uh, Rationalism in Politics. That was written in 1942, and then another one, probably the central conversation for today is an essay called On Being Conservative from 1956. He says, conservatism is not a creed or a doctrine, but a disposition to think and behave in certain manners. It's a propensity to use and enjoy what is available rather than to wish for or to look for something else. It's to delight in what is present rather than what was or what may be. The esteem is for the present and the familiar, and if the unpresent is settled, unsettled, he says, seek recourse in the past. So it's kind of a, an attitude of contentment. So this is very different, I think, than conservatism in America, where you and I have been going through these books and dealing through these ideas and wrestling with them and turning them over in our hands. And conservatism for us, I think, to certainly for me, and in America, means a series of philosophical and ideological points of reference that then produce, you know, the policy positions that we that we would probably take. This is very different than that because he doesn't actually take a lot of positions that would lead to kind of policy answers, although there is a little bit and, and we'll get to that, but it's mostly an attitude. It's mostly, he calls this disposition to sort of approach the world in a certain way rather than have these, uh, these ideological beliefs.
0: Yeah. I I think it's, it's a, uh, it's a very European conservatism and in a way that, you know, we sometimes we look at election results across the Atlantic and, and compare them to our own and, and compare policies there to our own, but there's something different in, in, in British conservatism or French conservatism or, or German conservatism than, than ours. And that's, maybe that's part of what we are trying to find out in this podcast is not just what is a conservative, but what is an American conservative, because Mm -hmm. a lot of what he's talking about here is, is being against systematizers, people who have a a rational overarching theory of the world that they apply to the political scene and to other parts of life. And that's kind of a theme in, in in American conservatism. I mean, but only, only kind of, Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're against the sort of, One size fits all, big, you know, socialist theory or fascist theory that animates everything and replaces everything. But we also, I mean, we have ideas. I mean, we have ideas about limited government. We have ideas about local government, and and these are these are ideologies. He's talking. What he's talking about is is a non ideological conservatism. It's something that if if you those of you who have listened to uh, episode nineteen. Uh, with about Andrew Sullivan's book, Sullivan was a, a student of Bookshot, and he expressed a lot of these ideas in a sort of was for me a less clear way, and, and this kind of helps me understand what he's getting at. But it was, yeah, conservatism as a like a mode as a as not it's not a, an anti system system, and that's a it's a hard thing for for us to get our heads around. I mean, our the founding fathers that we conservatives revere. They made a system. They made a constitution. They made a, a new thing. And, and Oakchot does mention that in the I think the second essay we read about how America is a is a different sort of beast when it comes to politics. Maybe because there is less history. There is you know there, there isn't a thousand years of political tradition that mm-hmm. we can just fall back on. There's no tradition of muddling through and little this little that you know weaving weaving and bobbing through various crises and coming up with a moderate result and that, that that's a lot of english history you know and when they when they divert from that they had things like the english civil war but mostly their conservatives are not ideological conservatives and even their liberals are not 100 percent ideological liberals it's hard to get your head around as an American conservative because we definitely have theories. We have ideas, we have ideologies. Oakshott's sort of getting at what's behind that. You know, what's he really emphasizing the tradition, um, the traditional element, which we've talked about a lot over the weeks here. But I think for him, it's the, the central theme.
1: Yeah. And his interest in tradition is more the interest in, as he says, like preferring the familiar to the unknown, the tried to the untried. And so there's a, a deep element of Edmund Burke in here, but I think a little bit different than Burke, at least it seemed to me. I wonder if you think, what you think, but he's not really traditional in the sense of how we think of traditional as in tra- traditional values and, uh, looking to the past for collective wisdom of, of all our ancestors to make the society work properly and that sort of thing. And Edmund Burke, that was, I mean, Burke was all about that and viewed it as the unfolding of, of God's will, you know, traditional we understand really as you know family and traditional values and religion, and he's very sp- specific at some certain points in saying like, no, you don't have to be any of those. You don't have to have any of those beliefs. It's kind of like when you have a, a disposition, well, uh, to just be skeptical of any abstractions of a disposition or an attitude of, you know, you're highly suspicious of, of ideas in general. You know, everything mm-hmm. is just uh evolved. There's just an evolutionary nature. And where Burke would say that's that evolution is the unfolding of God's will, he he specifically uh rejects that and just says it doesn't have to be God's will. It just has to be the un, basically the unfolding of history. And he says when it comes to you know the future in history, he says our world is a product of human beings making choices and we know as little about where history is leading as we know about the fashion of hats in 20 years or the design of cars yeah idealists want to convert chaos into order but we have no ability to do that instead it's just a mystery life is a mystery and and from one moment to the next and so you should stick to your own garden and you know and uh, mind your own business and you know be friendly to your neighbors but live your life and and just kind of quietly and remotely and so it's just very different because when we think of traditional we also think of you know community and traditional society you know people working together and that sort of thing and his I'm not saying he feels this way but the but reading over his thought it strikes me that you know it just feels like he might be kind of a hermit you know like mm-hmm. he, you do you and I'll do me and I'm I'm gonna do it my way and you should do it your way then and so in that way I guess it's, a, it's has uh, some libertarian strains too, which is not something we would ever associate with traditionalism. I don't know what he No, No,
0: it, it's, um. It, at the same time, it really rejects that natural law thing. Right, you know, yeah, where, yeah, I mean, him saying, like, that history is just, a, like, the product of human choices on, you know, piled on top of each other over the centuries, that feels more random than the idea that we're trying to discover nature's purpose mm-hmm. or God's mm-hmm. purpose. Um, it's, it's more like, well you know, these are the things we've decided over the years. Are they right? Oh, I don't know. Um, but they're what are. So I think compared to, I think Burke takes a view of tradition. That's sort of like a positive view in the like really positive normative sense. He's saying we have this tradition and we have it because it's the, the product of generations of human knowledge. And, you know, all of the wisdom of the, of our ancestors comes down to us in this tradition. And that's, Something that we should value because it's probably right. It's not that we should never change it, but that you're going against, you know, generations of 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 the wise and, and the not so wise, but all, you know, all of all of the best ways society could figure out how to live put together has come down to us as tradition. And I think mm-hmm. Oakshot looks at it more of like a normative thing. It's like, well, we have a tradition. This is what it is, um, and we should not change it idly. But his his is more of like a suspicion of change. I think if he could be convinced that it's better, he'd have no problem changing it. Mm-hmm. And I guess Burke says that too. But they, they're looking at it in different ways. I don't think he Burke values tradition. I think Oakshot fears change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they may have the same effect, but they're they're definitely different approaches.
1: And he, so he says, slow changes are more tolerable than large and sudden changes. I mean, th- that's something we recognize. Mm-hmm. You know, you value continuity. So we can have change, but it but the change needs to occur organically and, you know, th- through just the flow of human existence. This, uh, he obviously would strongly, as, as Burke would strongly oppose, like a French Revolution-style rewrite of, of the human being. Now, I want to read a few of these. Conservative preferences. And let's see if either one of us, you know, feel like it captures our attitudes. So I said before, fami- uh, prefer the familiar to the unknown, prefer the tried to the untried, fact to mystery, the actual to the possible, prefer the limited to the unbounded, prefer the near to the distant, prefer the sufficient to the superabundant the convenient to the perfect. Familiar relationships and loyalties, you would prefer to the allure of more profitable attachments. So you prefer to keep and cultivate what you have and enjoy it. And the grief of loss is, you felt far more acutely than, than the excitement of novelty. In some ways you're like, okay, yeah, okay. But uh, yeah. as I was reading this, it, it just it made me think of people in my life who I think of as really good solid people good citizens who are not necessarily open to new ideas <laughs> so i mean there's a there's kind of like a, a give and take here because as american conservatives i mean i think that we are really open to to ideas you know i mean i, f- I feel like you know you and i have talked about this before in the in the early mid 1990s like the republicans were the party of ideas and you know there is a vision for how to make things better which I- involved like turning to the past, but it wasn't sort of like, here's where we are, you know, kind of an Eeyore thing, you know, this mm-hmm. is just, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to, I've, I've gotten up at 532 every morning and that's since I was born and that, that's never going kind of like the stories, of, I don't know if you've heard of, um, uh, Kant, the philosopher who had, had never, he, he would wake up at exactly the same time and at 11 o'clock he would take the exact same walk, um, around the university and come back and he would, he would you know, arrive back at, you know, exactly 1142. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's what it kind of reminded me of, which is just really different than I, than maybe the familiarity that we would think of. We, we prefer the familiar in that the the past has lessons to teach us and we shouldn't throw it away Id- idly. That's a little bit different than saying, I'm not going to say whether the past was good or bad. He basically says it just is and we should accept what is and to your point like it's normative it's the it's this this normative judgment that what is is best because it is and
0: mm-hmm. some um, he talked about the conservatives should accept change in the way they accept death in that it's inevitable and it's mm. that's a that's a view of change that's really <laughs> i mean sure okay i mean that's a good way of looking <laughs> at life but it's um
1: so there's no positive really necessarily in no, change. You know? Change is always lost. There's no aspirations. I, I yeah. guess that's what that's what we're missing here is what, yes. what are your aspirations for, for the future? Not maybe really that, any.
0: Maybe that shows in a way that we're still a new country too, because we are still trying to improve. And, and even in our most conservative segments of the population, there's there's this idea that, well, look, there's a new business opportunity. You could double your income. You should take it, you know, mm-hmm. or move to this new neighborhood. Boy, you could get a bigger house. You know, you could have a nicer school district. Let's do it. You know, there's a, there's more of a willingness to jump in to new ideas. If, if they comport with your, you know, philosophy of life, you know, joint Americans will change churches, change neighborhoods, change schools, mm-hmm. you know I mean? Things like our, our charter school systems and, 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 you know, new private schools that pop up all the time that's, I don't know. It seems like in England, every school is 300 years old, you know? Yeah. Right. And that's, <laughs> and that's You're going to go to
1: the school that your, your triple great granddaddy went to.
0: <laughs> yeah. If that works, it's great, but we're still trying to figure out the best way, uh, you know, and maybe that makes us very different from England. You think of us as being a lot like England. I mean, we obviously inherited their, their common law and, and their language and, and their religion to a large extent. And, you know, we have so much in common with them. We've got the special relationship with Britain. It's it, reading something like this really points out that it, we're the same, but we're not identical. And we have this, um, we still have this drive. This is more, you know, Adam Smith kind of libertarian drive on the right. So we're still figuring things out and that we might be more respectful of tradition and local preferences and, and, and things like that. But even within our local communities, we're more of a, uh, like what Justice Brandeis called the laboratories of democracy, you know, where mm. like we're sure we're for local control, but not so that each locality can preserve in Amber, it's tradition of 200, 300 years. Yeah. 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 We're for local control because maybe, maybe Massachusetts wants to do something wild and it might work, you know, but we're not going to impose it on the whole country, but if they want to try it, sure. And if it works, mm. Connecticut will copy it and, and New York and, and Pennsylvania. And that's how a lot of ideas have spread around in, in governance for good or for bad, we're more comfortable with that. I think that this sort of British Tory conservatism is oh mustn't mustn't bother with that you know, look strange, let's don't you know, and not only is it is it really sort of inward looking and collapsing, preserving rather than innovating it's um it leaves you vulnerable to people in the other parties who have no qualms about change, you're right we're not we're fighting ideas versus ideas over here what he's what he's talking about is fighting stasis with ideas and ideas tend to win
1: that's that's a really good way to put it i think you can imagine him responding to all that and saying yeah sure you can you can innovate if that you know if that's what floats your boat but uh, i'm just telling you that it's not gonna it's really not gonna make much difference first of all you're probably gonna fail almost for sure you're gonna fail and even if it succeeds, you know, at best, you're going to get to a place that we would have gotten to anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, uh, you, you know, kids, you can you can spin your wheels and like a hamster, but it's not really going to change. You know, overall, the grass is not greener, and it never will be. <laughs> I guess there's there's something to that. But um, yeah, Here, here's a piece that I found really interesting because I after all that i didn't really expect him to say this which is in terms of human nature something that we talked a lot about the last few episodes he says there's not much profit to be had from general speculation about human nature now, and so uh, that's almost a statement that you could expect to hear from mark marxists but uh mm. he says human nature is no steadier than anything else in our acquaintance much better to consider our current u- human nature and by that he means uh ourselves you know like so you, you can see kind of a deep skepticism of social science too and on the one hand you you know conservatives in america would probably share some of that because a lot of social science is you know driven by the left to try to come up with you know rationales for changing things but but then again we have the charles murray's of the world who really enlighten and <laughs> open open up new understandings and, you know mm-hmm. he's Pretty solidly against any of that, saying, you know, human nature, you know, it is what it is, and you know, there's really no benefit to exploring in that, sticking your nose in there, because it's, you know it's just better to try to understand us as we are, which is like tradition and the uh, history has brought us to this point, and it's happened organically and that kind of thing. But Burke was sort of like this, and we talked about this before. It's a kind of a postmodern view of human of the social construction of uh human being mm-hmm. is a rejection of human nature. which it's just, I mean, obviously pretty contrary to more or less all facets of conservatism in America.
0: Yeah. So it, the question comes up, well, how do we, how do we apply this to politics? And that's, he talks about that. I mean, the, the, I mean, the book has a whole section called reflections on modern politics. So it's not like he's, Although he sounds a lot like a hermit, like you said, or, or like the, like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, he, he's clearly not advocating withdrawal from the world in that hermetic tradition. He's saying there are conservative politics, but it's kind of fuzzy on what he actually says they are. I mean, he says that conservatism in politics means a conservative temperament and the belief that politics is something to be conservative about. Yeah, is very circular, obviously. Yes, I, it's, I, I read that a few times, and I've got it underlined, and I'm, I'm still kind of coming back to what that means. But that's sort of, I guess, sort of the anti-ideology ideology, which is, is frustrating for anyone who's trying to figure things out. You know, I mean, how do you, how do you convince somebody of what we're saying is a good idea, except to... I mean, maybe that's maybe that's again the American-British distinction. As a, a f- people founded on Enlightenment principles, here we we want arguments, <laughs> we want proofs, yeah, in the yeah. in the geometric sense. You know, we want the A, B, C, and then you get to the end and QED, and you know, that's that tied up in a bow. And I mean, we, like we discussed in the Thomas Sowell episode, sometimes arguments don't actually change minds. People have a, these worldviews. And that's kind of maybe mm-hmm. one of these worldviews is this conservative worldview. He's that Oak is talking about here, but it just feels if it feels like retreat to say, this is what it is. We we rely on, on the way things are, the things we're comfortable with. It's like, that's, that's not really, that's, well, it's not a system. It's consciously not a system, but it, we want a system. At least I, I do. It's some system of beliefs, if not a, overarching system of laws and rules for mankind at least uh these principles that you can go back to and say well how does this new situation comport with the things i believe Mm -hmm. and i think he's very fuzzy on the things we believe
1: and and i think part of part of maybe my negative attitude is that i feel like what he's doing is walking right into the the typical criticisms of the left about the right that it's nostalgic reactionary you know, uninterested in improvement, you know, just focused on maintaining your own power and privilege rather Mm -hmm. than trying to make any improvements to the world at all or um, contribute any new thought or ideas. Cause I'm reading through this and I'm like, well, I think he's susceptible to all those. (laughs) Yeah. I don't feel like we, I mean, I feel like pushing back on some of those that, it's not a reactionary nostalgia. It's sort of a recognition that you know th- some things have really worked, and you know humans, human society has evolved in certain ways. You know over the cent- centuries and millennia because of the fact that this is how we're kind of hardwired to behave and that kind of thing. But he would say, "Well, we're not hardwired to behave any way or the other. It just is what it is." And so it just opens him up to all the criticisms that I that I find annoying, the criticisms that we get, you know, and. Uh, And I think he's really susceptible to them. So I react a little bit to that.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's the same sort of criticism you hear of, especially of the libertarian, right? I think too, is well, you just want to help those in power. You don't want to, but I think the most libertarians believe that, that liberty and free markets help the poor when, you know, when, and, and the rich and the middle, I mean, they help everybody and that's, that's an argument we're not great at making. Oh, chat doesn't really help with that. He just, yeah, he's just familiarity seems to be his touchstone. And that will appeal to a lot of people. And we all like the stuff that we already like. That's again, that's circular, but it's, it's true. But what is it? What does that get you? Because people like different things. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's what does that get you when you're trying to figure out a system of government or a law that's, up for debate a candidate who's running for office i mean what can you say it, the whole thing is don't switch horses in midstream okay that's yeah. a that's a that's a thing but it's not it's not the whole thing
1: yeah yeah and it doesn't have much force <laughs> no so he does talk a little about what he views as the role of government but um so let's go through a few of these i think he says government should not impose beliefs or activities upon its subjects it should not tutor or educate them should not make them better or happier in another way. Government should not direct them or galvanize them into action. So I think this is a broadside against George Will and you <laughs> know, Ross tell that and all that. Like, uh, government is not there to make us more moral. And in fact, he specifically says government should not concern itself at all with moral right and wrong. Government should not lead or coordinate activities to resolve conflict. Instead, government plays the role of umpire, Whose business is to administer the rules of the game? I mean, that sounds that could be a quote straight from Milton Friedman. You know, I mean, (laughs) there's a real libertarian strain when it comes to okay, so all this uh, conservative disposition and it doesn't necessarily create an ideology or uh, give you a a reference point for any particular stance on any particular issue. What what do you think of government then? Is basically he goes straight libertarian. Is like government shouldn't do anything except set the, you know, general rules of the road and not limit our choices, not impose uniformity, just enforce uh, these basic rules, you know, provide redress and means of compensation. He says for those who suffer from others behaving badly, provide punishment, provide sufficient force to maintain authority, to enforce the rules. So that just sounds a whole lot like, uh, John Locke and the state of nature. So he, Mm -hmm. I mean, he doesn't talk about Locke, but to me, that's where he's going, is that uh, the role of government is that minimal government of, you know, the whole reason, you know, Locke said that humans came out of the state of nature is to protect one another, protect one another's property, protect your own property. And it seems to me, you tell me if you think, if, if I'm wrong, that that's kind of his, uh, his vision of government as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's government is, is neutral arbiter, the brooding omnipresence of the law. It reminded me a lot of um, Chief Justice Roberts's confirmation hearings. Yeah, me too. Yeah, when he talked, to, he talked about an umpire too, and you know, Roberts is talking about a baseball umpire, and Oakshott's talking about a cricket umpire. But it's the same thing. It's the, it's the one that's calling the balls and strikes, it's, or whatever they have in cricket. It's you know, it's this is what it. Here's the laws. Did the thing that just happened fall on one side of the law or the other? That makes sense to Americans when we talk about our courts. But here mm-hmm. oakshot's talking about it for all of government and that's uh I, that's it's libertarian in a way i hadn't thought about it in that exact formulation but yeah he that in that way he falls on the pretty far libertarian end of the conservative libertarian scale but i don't know if he'd call himself a libertarian
1: yeah i'm i'm sure he wouldn't i think he would say that this disposition just leads to this uh, result that you know if we're if we're gonna live and let live in a in a very you know this disposition of you know organic change and that sort of thing like we don't want government getting involved to make changes you know the the criticism that you and I have had of the left which is that that government is this gigantic motherboard with all these dials and these levers that we can pull and and turn in order to create this perfect you know human result on the back end he's completely skeptical of all that and doesn't think the grass is greener doesn't think that we could actually change anything doesn't think that anything is uh, that human society would even benefit really from from any of these changes even if we could make them happen because ultimately the whatever we achieve is something that probably isn't much better than what we already have Mm -hmm. When we have, uh, you know, our social conservatives or, you know, moral conservatives in America, like, uh, you know, George Will and and those sorts who are like, hey, we can take this information and we can actually, what we want to do is create virtue and make the country a better place, make the people more uh, moral and virtuous. And he rejects all that in the same way he would reject French Revolution style, like rewrite of, you know, it just that is not you know government shouldn't get involved in any of that we're supposed to be tending our own gardens everyone needs to mind their own business you know mm-hmm. <laughs> don't be sticking your nose around in other people's stuff don't try to make them better you know don't try to bring us together as a as a country and you know you you could surmise that he probably is pretty skeptical of patriotism and certainly of nationalism but even you know even like uh, standing up and putting your hand on, uh, on your heart and reciting the pledge. he, I think he, I bet he would say, no, we shouldn't be doing that either. So, and and then again, there's another place where he just feels libertarian. So he, on the one hand is like very nostalgic traditionary, uh, traditional reactionary. And on the other hand, when it comes to actual practice of government, like keep your hands off of everything and just let us live and let live. I know it's really interesting. It's, It's a strange mix that, yes, we wouldn't recognize.
0: It it is. I found it interesting in the towards the end of the second essay, he talks about how he thinks that a government that acts this way, that acts that removed, would actually make the people better just by its remove. And he says the spectacle of, of its indifference, as the government's indifference, to the beliefs and substantive activities of its subjects may itself be expected to provoke a habit of restraint. Mm-hmm. And he goes on about that to, for some like this sort of it would the coolness of the government in the face of various social fights would encourage people to calm down. I'm not sure that's true. I think people will stay every bit as hot and then of course when the side that wants change takes over the government it, that cool removal will disappear. Right, right. That, that's that's always the problem here, so you know, we we have to balance this idea of wanting government to stay out of our affairs with knowing that the other side will use government when they're in power. So what do we do to counteract that except to say, you know, hands off, let's, let's go back to leaving people alone. And it can only, I, I like that, but it can only go so far. And it's that, that's the conflict we're are dealing with the, you know, within the conservative movement today. It's like, like you were saying with the, you know, the, statecraft is soulcraft side of things or the the freedmanish side of things Mm -hmm. he seems to think that inactivity in government will will create this virtue of sort of tolerance and cool-headedness in the people i'd like to believe it i'm just not it doesn't i don't know what do you think it doesn't really ring true to me
1: i mean i agree with you 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 can imagine his response you know if we say well how do you push back against the you know, the other side or whatever, he might say, I don't think pushing back against the other side is worth your, worth your time.
0: Mm. And
1: they're like, okay, well, how about when they get in the office and they make all these massive changes and everything that you hate? And you can almost imagine him saying, yeah, well, that's inevitable, but, uh, you know, it's still not worth your energy to fight it. And, you know, when it, once it, uh, if it becomes law, then hopefully we'll get, get back into power and we can just hit pause on you know on, on, on any changes until the next time that they're in power or something like that
0: yeah that's 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 just it though i mean that's 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 the course of british conservatism and the course of a lot of american conservatism of that sort of like me too conservative in the you know in the in the new deal sense of that phrase you know and the, the when the eisenhower republicans came in there's a lot of the uh, the hard right ones. like, well let's rip all this stuff out and then but then moderate right say, so, well let's keep most of it around people seem to like it, and maybe just fix yeah. it make it work better you know and we've done that with every leftist expansion of government pretty much people will yeah. talk about repealing it like they talked about repealing obamacare and then when they get in the office there's a few who are whoa let's let's slow down that's it's already a thing so let's just keep it maybe we'll fix it some
1: yeah, well, that's for sure. And through the history of all conservatism from Buckley on, like the Republicans and conservatives have said, we need to cut wasteful spending and all this. And even during the Reagan years, the increased spending and even for <laughs> like some budgets will slow the growth of government year over year. But at no time has the growth of government ever been you know turned negative at, at any point. <laughs> we can't do it. We can't do it because we can't give up our programs either.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're you said pause, and I think that's it. I mean, it's, we're not bugly wanted to stand the thwart history yelling stop, but we mostly just yell pause.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, and that's what that's that's going that's that's to be the new uh, you know mantra of our yeah podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Standing thwart history yelling pause. Yeah, cool. at least for a few years until Kamala Harris becomes president.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, let's not be hasty. Oh, wait, we're out of power again. Okay, we didn't change anything. And that's that's the frustration with with that kind of deep conservative mood of of Oakshot and and the really British style old-style conservatives is there. It's it's about acceptance of what is rather than acceptance of, of what's right. And I guess he, that's probably Yeah, in the original non-political sense of the word conservative, he's that's it. I mean, it's conserving, you know, but it's you end up conserving things that are bad ideas, you know. Mm -hmm, Right? If if the uh, the Thatcher government had come in and just conserved all of Labor's nationalizations, I don't know if. Maybe Oakshire wasn't like that. I don't know. But instead, they they privatized things that had been taken over by the government. And just, you know, we've done some of that here. Um, I guess our left never went as far as the British left, so there wasn't as much to roll back. You know, we didn't nationalize yeah. the coal mines here, you know, things like that.
1: But it could be. I mean, this is an enlightening conversation because it could also be that there just wasn't enough opposition where – here in America, there certainly is heavy, heavy opposition to nationalizing the coal mines or mm. or the healthcare system. Or over there, they're probably like, "No, dumb idea, don't do it, don't do it." And then once they do it, it's like, "Okay, it's in." You know, let's just hit pause. Yeah.
0: Was, <laughs> well, all right, let's try and try and make it work. This is what we've got. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah, it's fixing the most egregious parts of a leftist program to make them actually still function. You know, but that's. Is that conservatism, or is that that's that's just Clintonism? You know, I mean, that, that's neoliberalism or whatever you want to call it. It's mm-hmm. that's not a that's an ideology of go as far left as will not break everything. You know, <laughs> that's that's not really. We have a conservatism that fights back. I don't right, know, right. I don't think yeah. Ocasio wants to fight anything.
1: Yeah, because when he's talking about change and changes you know here in uh, American conservatism we th- we talk about change as far as like we're trying to stop these radical changes of that the left wants to impose on the on the country when he's talking about change he's talking about you know the slow organic you know evolution of things and so he's fine when he just is like okay we can have change but let's make it slow and so changes that are easily assimilated he says you can imagine that he probably could be fine with immigration for example, as long as it happens slowly and the people assimilated and, you know, there's some similarities there with our conservatism, but he mm-hmm. says the way he views change is really interesting to me because he, he says, change is a threat to identity. Conservatism is strongly disposed to preserve identity. And I was thinking, what do, what do we mean by that? But I guess he means, you know, who I am and how I fit into the world because mm-hmm. of this this organic world, your family, you know, your, your community, and kind of like what we were talking about before, where your identity is wrapped up in, in your family and your farm. And, you know, this is what we do. And these are our people kind of thing for him. Change means that uh, that identity can be threatened because changes can, you know, overturn how you've understood yourself. And so that has some similarity to, you know, what maybe we're experiencing in the Trump era. In this mm-hmm. era of populism, that ch- change is a is a threat to identity and help you know, throws chaos into how we understand who we are in the universe, and so that's really interesting. And we probably do have a of some measure of that here in America, and it's different than how I would think of change. How I would think of change is like, you know, the Green New Deal. We've got to stop it at all costs or something like that. And he's probably more like, I just want to make sure that we still you know, understand who we are and then we can still kind of live
0: our lives in this organic manner.
1: I don't know. Is that what you took?
0: That's a, that's a great way of putting it. I think how you live, you know, how you see your life, there's going to be changes. I mean, since the industrial revolution and before we've had technological changes, changes in the way we work and live, but uh, yeah, a gradual one, you know, the technology you use at your job improves slightly. There's an upgrade you get a better car that works better you know these are changes that you can live with you can adjust but yeah something like well we can't everything has to have solar panels now that's the new that's the new deal green you mm-hmm. know that that would be a, a drastic change you know especially for people who work in any other industry that relies on energy you know or you know you can't can't do this with your property anymore you need a permit for this and a permit you know that's the sort of thing that would, would bug a conservative conservative well, I've done it this way forever. It's not hurting anybody. He's comfortable with gradual change, as long as it doesn't disrupt the maybe the the way people view themselves within society. It's hard to measure that, but that's a that's a problem we've had with a lot of how much change is enough. Mm-hmm. You know, that discussion is, you know, even our there's there's been no. I don't think we've read anybody who said everything should remain the same, because we all know that the world changes, but how, you know, how do you measure, well, this much is enough, but going over this far, that that's going to mess everything up. It's it requires judgment. And a lot of conservative politics required judgment because they don't have that all or nothing ideal. So it's, and he's, his judgment I think is about the speed of things rather than the degree, but it still requires us to, to think and, and come to a consensus about how much is too much how much, how fast is too fast.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And going back to the, the essays and from David French, you know, what, to what degree do you fight back and, you you know, push back? And his answer seems to be like, it's not worth the fight, you know, just kind of figure out a way to deal with it and, you know, get back to living your life. So that's a little unsatisfying, particularly probably for people who listen to this podcast, you probably do feel strongly. I do, you know, about certain ideas and, Mm -hmm. and have a vision for how the world can actually improve, which involves like turning back to some tradition or so forth. But it's almost like the, in America of politics is a blood sport. And for him, he's saying like, Hmm, it's not worth the bother. I'd I'd rather just tend to my tulips, you know, whatever.
0: Yeah. I think that sums it up.
1: All right. So what are your final thoughts?
0: Well, I think I think Oakshot tells us a lot about he describes a way of life that I think people would understand. The idea of tradition and, and comfort with ideas and well trod paths. I think for I mean, I think a lot of that depends on how old you are. You know, as I get older and you know, turn forty this year and there are things that I'm I've been doing for years now and I don't particularly want to change them. That's a that's a conservative temperament, and you know, it's true in just you know how how my family is organized, my work. These are things, and I you know, younger listeners might find that stodgy. Our older listeners might find that you know, one hundred percent true. I I, I think that's that's a real (laughs) that's a real distinction here, and that's maybe part of why our movement attracts more on the older end of the spectrum, then, you know, we, we get a lot of ex liberals, you know, who, yeah right. they took it so far and they said, all right, this is nuts, <laughs> you know? So I think that Ogishak gets at that, but he doesn't, um, I'm not sure he really communicates a political movement that's viable in America because we are still a land of, of rationalism and enlightenment ideas. And these things are a little too French revolutionist for him. I think they're too, mm-hmm. too untraditional. You know, because our our founding fathers did make a new thing and it was, it was based, there were old ideas in it and there were old customs in the people, but America is a new land, even still, and we're still figuring things out. And that means we're going to have people on the right who want change and people on the left who want change. And that's, that is uh, different, I think, than the, the vision Oakshott sets forth for conservatism.
1: All right. Well said. So that is it for Michael Oakshot. Next time, we're going to read a book called Restoring the Lost Constitution by legal scholar Randy Barnett. It was published in 2003. So catch us then. Thanks.